All right, we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. I hope that you guys have been excited by the things that um, we're just beginning to scrape, uh, scrape the surface. So let's go ahead and stand as we read the beginning of chapter one here today. Um, uh, let's do this. I will read the odd and then we will read the, the highlighted or even verses together. So let's begin here in 1 Thessalonians chapter one as we read these first 10 verses. It begins, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. All right, you guys can have a seat. You know, as I chose this book, as we were coming out of the book of Genesis and uh, just praying, talking, kind of brainstorming, like, Lord, where do you want to take our church? I love this new season that we're here in downtown Fullerton. And my wife and I were talking about different books. And she's like, what about First Thessalonians? I'm like, ah, oh, that's what I was thinking. And we were going back and forth. And, and part of the reason that, that I think I was so excited, you know, about taking you guys through this book, not only is it Paul's first letter in the list of his different letters, but it's, it's right here at the cusp of the gospel going into unreached territory. And I think as we think about the things that we want to see God do here in Fullerton during this season as the gospel is going for, for the first time into what we would consider like Europe, right? It's crossing over from that area of the Middle East of Jerusalem, Turkey, kind of that area of Paul's first mission field. And now on his second missionary journey, he's called, we see the, uh, we talk about this, the, the calling of the man of Macedonia. He's called to cross over the sea. And now the gospel is beginning to go into what you and I would consider like the Roman Empire. And so now as God is leading Paul on this, on this mission trip, if you will, we begin not to see the, the movement of the gospel, but we see that wherever Paul went, he wanted to preach the gospel and plant churches. That it was through the planting of the church, through the establishment of like, here's a group of believers, here's a group of elders and leaders, this, this group that God was beginning to forge, that out of that group, transformation in the city, transformation in the people, and that's where we can kind of go back and look at vintage Christianity and say, okay, God, how do we see what you did then in a pagan and broken society 
and begin to say, Lord, how can you do that in and through with us? And so last week, we kind of spent some time talking about the church in Thessalonica. Like, like it wasn't just the church in Jerusalem, and then when the gospel went to Thessalonica, oh, we'll call, well this, this will be something else. No, that that group of believers that got saved in that pagan city, he called them a church. And what is that supposed to look like? What happens in a church? What does a healthy church look like? What, what should be some of the priorities and the focus and the emphasis? How does God form and shape and mold a church just as we're praying, Lord, how do you want to work in us? as part of the local church and the global church. And we kind of started on that last week. Now, again, just to put life in perspective, you guys haven't been to Greece. You're like, I don't know where Thessalonica is on a map. Maybe you have, maybe you've done a you know, Greece trip, but Thessaloniki is still there today. It's one of those ancient cities. But in this time, it was a capital city of that region, just like we have Orange County, L.A. County, San Diego County. And inside that county, you might have a key city that helps kind of govern that area. Well, as I mentioned before, you know, we live in the middle of one of the, 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 the largest population centers in America, you know, L.A., 10 million people, largest county in America. Orange County is number six. San Diego is number five. Like, you know, in a two-hour radius, there's more people that live right where we are than about anywhere else in America. And like I said, when you're on the freeway, it makes a lot of sense, right? You're like, I can see it. But when you think about, like, what it's like to live in a population hub, what it's like to live in a city where when a domino falls, right, you think of, like, uh, Hollywood, you think of L.A., and kind of what happens there echoes into a lot of different places. Well, Thessalonica was one of those cities. Inside the Roman Empire, it had a special status. It was a capital city. It had both certain freedom, but that came with a, a deep affection, a, a deep connection, both for Rome and the Caesar and all that it did. It kind of had to support what was going on there in Rome, both with its uh, politics and the way that it, it managed through life. And so how did in this difficult soil of the Greek and Roman pantheon of gods, how did this pagan capital city respond to the gospel? Now we begin to say, how does that, how did what God did in Thessalonica, how does that become maybe a blueprint? How does it become a point of prayer for what we want to see God do in a city like Orange County that, like I said, is number six in terms of the population, the largest populations in America? Like we live in a place where if God began to do a work here, like it said of what uh, we were just reading and the message, the news of it began to go out and all of the other communities began to see what God was doing. Now, what makes this interesting is like I said, Paul wasn't there very long. You know, according to the book of Acts, he was there at least three weeks, three weeks. He's there preaching the gospel, teaching, making disciples, and then he gets kicked out of the city. He gets driven out and then ultimately he begins to make his way over the next couple of cities. He sends back Timothy to say, man, I'm so worried, you know, about like what we were like. We didn't we didn't leave like when I wanted to leave. We left too early. Let's go send back Timothy to like encourage to water those seeds. And and then as news comes back, you know, about what God was doing, Paul's answering questions you know, because we get to get to some insight. Now, what did Paul preach that over three weeks, people get saved, pagans turn to Jesus, and the city begins to like become this hub for the gospel? Well, that's part of why we're getting into this book. But to think that God could do that in a matter of 21 days, we kind of challenged you guys last week to think, what could God do over the next 21 days 
if I were being as proactive or as intentional about the gospel as Paul was. Now, let's begin in our, our, our text today. Again, we're kind of making our way slow. Last week, we got into one word, the church. And so here, as we get into verse two, I want you to notice as Paul begins to open his letter, and this is actually a typical greeting that you'll see from Paul as he's opening his letter, but I want you to notice it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. And then here's our highlighted phrase to start our message. It says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now, granted, we're in November, which means... Yeah, like you're like turkey day, let's go, right? Like I, I know that for most of us, the minute I say Thanksgiving, like there's turkey, there's stuffing, there's family, there's gravy, I don't know, I don't know what the top of your list is. But I mean, when you hear Thanksgiving, we start to associate food and family, et cetera. You know, but in, in reality, you know, kind of let the, at the heart of that concept of the meal and the gathering together really is an opportunity for us to stop and do what? To give thanks. The word is actually our word Eucharist. It's Eucharisto. It's actually part of where we get like, and Jesus gave thanks. He broke, took the bread and broke it. We would think of that as the heart of communion. I mean, there's a, there's a deeper sense of like gratitude in terms of the work that God is doing. And I want to just stop. If we were doing our Thanksgiving meal, if we were having our Thanksgiving time and you were doing a gratitude like inventory, a gratitude list, like what would be the kind of things that would be on the top of that? Hey, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my job. I'm grateful for my health. There are some really good things that you could stop today and be grateful for. And it's probably good if you haven't done it for a while to make that list. And as much as we could spend the rest of the message talking about that, and we're actually gonna get in when we get into, I told you there's three times in the New Testament where the Bible actually uses this phrase, for this is the will of God for you. You're like, what? That's in there? Like literally, the Bible says explicitly, there are some things where God says, I want you to understand my will. Two of them are in this book, okay? One of those is actually gonna be talking a little bit about this idea of worship and gratitude. So we're gonna spend some time getting into that just a little later on in the book. But what I want you to notice this morning is the emphasis, the focus of what Paul's grateful for. Because I don't know if we would all have this on our list the way that Paul does. Notice the thing that Paul is grateful for is he's writing back to these people is he's grateful for what? He's grateful for those people that responded to the gospel. For him, the idea that these people, when the message of the gospel was communicated, is he's thinking about Thessalonica in that city, and he's thinking about those that heard the message of who Jesus was, and the idea that he's coming back, and they're like, man, I am willing to put down Zeus, and I'm willing to put down Aphrodite, and I'm willing to put down all of these other ways in which I worship God, because I'm like, man, that is what I need. And so Paul, as he's writing back, he says, man, whenever I stop right now and I pray and I'm talking to the God of the universe, the thing that comes into my mind is you. When we go back and we look at some of Paul's letters, you can look back at um, at least seven times, right? Each one of these letters, I'm I put the first one here in 1 Thessalonians, but Romans chapter 1, verse 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16, uh, over in Philippi, the Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians, over in Colossae, these are all cities in which Paul ministered in and the work of the gospel began to take root. Maybe it was a particular person like Philemon, or maybe it was an 
actual city. But in each one of these places, Paul begins, I am thankful to God for you. And he uses this word, like I said, Eucharisto. Like, man, there is a, there is a gratitude. There is a sense of like, man, this, when I stop and I think about the things that I'm grateful, it's you, your faces. It's you who've responded. It's you guys who are, are, are grabbing a hold of the baton of the gospel. It's like, man, when I, when I stop and pray, it's, it's this work that God did in you guys that comes first to mind. You know, when we, um, when we think about, like I said, the things that we are grateful for, there's a lot, of, a lot of things that we have in our lives. But unless you've maybe had the opportunity, the privilege, and, and some of you have, maybe it's been a little while. Have you ever had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone and you watch the light bulb go off? You know, maybe it was even one of your kids. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was a family member. But when you've been a part of that moment where you begin to see the gospel take root and you see the light begin to come in into somebody's eyes, it's like, oh my gosh. Like, could you imagine, like, if you had found some treasure? I was wondering about that the other day. Like, you know, what if, like, you were in your, your house, your backyard, you know? Like, did someone ever, like, find Barry? So guess what? I'm going to show you a news clip about someone who was on their property and guess what they found? This morning, you might find some of your neighbors grabbing shovels. A Northern California couple found a real-life treasure buried in their backyard. Ben Tracy shows us how it will make them accidental millionaires. This is what $10 million worth of gold coins look like. These rare coins date back to the mid to late 1800s. A Northern California couple says they were hiking on their property last February when they saw an old tin can poking out of the ground. It was a weird little secluded place that no one would have really had easy access to. They dug up a total of eight cans filled with more than 1,400 mint condition solid gold coins. Well, this doesn't happen every day. Don Kagan is the coin dealer the couple well, contacted. The they have chosen to remain anonymous and keep the exact location of their property and, secret and now that the coins are ready for sale. What's well, a great story because it was a relatively young couple, early 40s, who out with their dog and they've been on this, this path and uh, trail that they've been on on their property for many, many years. And they discover this, this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, perhaps. Kagan says whoever buried the coins did it over a number of years because they're dated from 1847 to 1894, the time of the fabled California gold rush. Because they were buried and out of circulation, they're in pristine condition. They're going up for sale, and the rarest coin in the collection could fetch $1 million on its own. It was a pretty incredible experience being able to sit across. Could you imagine being out on a walk? Trip on like a little, little can. You're like, what's this? And inside the can is a whole set of mint condition gold coins. And then you keep digging and you find more cans. You're like, oh, I, I, I would be anonymous too. I'd be like, you know how many people would be on your property? And again, that's kind of like the gold rush, right? Somebody finds something and everybody else wants to come in and find something. And you can imagine the excitement, the jubilation, and then like, I'm bringing in tractors, like there's not an inch of my property, right? Like, I want more. I mean, once you, once you find something, you're like, okay, how, mu how much more out there is there? And what I want you to just kind of grasp for a minute is that's the way Paul saw people. 
The idea of like being a treasure hunter, like, man, just the, the links that I would go to to kind of find the gold, to pan for the gold, to like, I mean, once you stumbled across it and thinking about the impact it has on my life and all this, but what if I thought of people that way? The book of Proverbs puts it this way. Proverbs 11, verse 30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. The idea of being a soul winner, someone who sees people as a treasure. This is what Paul will tell the Thessalonians in the next chapter. First Thessalonians chapter two, Paul says, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You know, as much as he is grateful for them, he's like, the word here for crown is the Greek word Stephanos. Okay, when you think of the idea of like the games, the Olympic games, all the, the different feats in which these guys would compete, the winner, you know, the, the someone who had accomplished some great feat and they wanted to recognize them, they would give them what would be a wreath crown, right? Now, when it talks about a crown that is perishable, you kind of get an idea of what it's like if I gave you flowers, right? A couple of weeks later, you're just like, they're just a mess now, right? They, they die. And even though you could compete like an Olympic athlete, put in all the years of training and effort, all for that, you know, couple of minutes, and then you get to the height of the achievement, and there they give you your Stephanos. And when you stop and you think about, like, the kinds of things people are putting in effort to get the Stephanos, to get the recognition, to get the affirmation, you are at the top of the top, or whatever that field is. Now, granted, the Bible also talks about crowns, diadems. It, it, it differentiates between the Stephanos and the diadems. And diadem is kind of like what you and I would think about in terms of a king, you know, an authority. But the Stephanos was that recognition. It's kind of that, that gold medal, that gold star, that affirmation that, man, you have accomplished something. And what he says is, you are my Stephanos before Jesus. As if when we get to heaven, if there is a recognition, because there's all kinds of good things that you guys are wanting to do, but it's like, hey, there is an affirmation for what? He who wins souls is wise. Think about the kind of stuff right now people are sacrificing and working so hard for. What are the Stephanoses of today? Whether it's your, you know, we just finished the, uh, the, the, the World Series. You know, you got the World Cup. You got the NBA title. Or you got people, like I said, that are pursuing a gold medal. And it's like, man, I want to be the top of the top of the best of the best. And you think about people who have lost marriages, who have sacrificed help, like done everything possible to be like, man, I got to get to the very top. And then it's fleeting. Like the Stephanos, the actual wreath. It just, its glory lasts for a minute. And then it kind of fades away. But the Bible describes something of value, something of recognition that's not going to fade away. And that's part of what Paul is talking about with this idea of Stephanos. You guys remember Rocky? My wife and I, we like these movies. Rocky, Rocky the first one, he says this as he's contemplating his up and coming fight with Apollo. And he's thinking about the idea that he's not going to win. He said, I was thinking it really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either because all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and the bell rings and I'm still standing, 
I'm gonna know for the first time in my life, see that I wasn't just another bum in the neighborhood. What's driving him to try to get to that place to grab hold of that Stephanos? What's he chasing? Chasing me, man, I'll finally know that I'm not just a bum. And when you think about the Stephanoses in your life, the things that you're making sacrifices for, the things that you're, you know, investing your time and effort and energy for, and you look at what's at the very end of them, as much as it's like, I want the tangible Stephanos, is what I'm really chasing a sense of purpose and meaning. And I'm telling you right here today, just like Paul talking about how these Thessalonians were for him, man, you guys are a crown before Jesus, like, when you've had the opportunity to invest, to pour in, to, to be able to see someone transferred from darkness into light, there is a joy and an enthusiasm that will far outweigh, I guarantee you, some of the other Stephanoses that the enemy is dangling in front of you. The Bible talks about 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, and when, Christ, when the chief shepherd appears you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. That crown is the Stephanos. And when you think about, like, I know we're not trying to, our, our good deeds aren't gonna get us into heaven. But the idea that if I were to be rewarded, if there were to be some type of recognition, what would I be rewarded for? My report card? You know, my, my job title? You know, what are the kind of things that when God looks and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, what is he looking at? Well, Paul, when talking to Thessalonians, says it was you. It was the pouring the gospel into people. It was going those extra links to say, man, I want to do everything possible to pour the gospel into people because that's what's going to give us a crown that doesn't fade away. And guys, when you think about the Stephanos, Jesus wore his Stephanos. That's another word that's used for the crown of thorns. It was the Stephanos of thorns. The crown that he wore was so that we could get what? That Stephanos. Don't misunderstand the way that we get to have the privilege of getting these crowns. It's the sharing of the message of what Jesus did. Lest we go around just trying to chase, you know, like, oh, I got to get more, I got to get more, I got to get more. No, no, the reason that I'm out communicating this message is because of what Jesus did. The crown that he wore now gives me access to this crown. Let's not forget the meaning behind the message. So while we have a little bit of time left, how do we start? When we look at this way that Paul went about saying, man, you guys are my crown of rejoicing. You guys are the things that gives me joy. You are what I'm grateful for. Man, this is the most exciting, passionate thing in my life. It's people. A couple of things I want to highlight. Three things today. Number one, notice as we began our, 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 our message, again, the letter, there's three people that are mentioned here at the very beginning, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. I want to make sure I highlight this idea that as you begin to think about this desire that God has given you, this calling, this equipping, part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit, he's given you power to be a witness. Some of us get really overwhelmed. We're like, man, that's not me. We feel like Moses. I, 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 like, I, can't, I can't even talk. The cool thing is that just as we see the work that God did through Paul, it wasn't Paul alone. Let me highlight this for a minute. Talk about the idea of the power of a team. 
There's a, a story you guys have heard me talk about this before. Jesus has this encounter with a group of four men. There in Mark chapter 2, Jesus has been communicating uh, the, the message of the kingdom. People are getting healed. All this stuff is happening in his hometown, this area of Capernaum. And so they're gathered there in what may be Peter's house. And as they're there, um, there in the city, the rumors that Jesus is in the town, there's a guy that's paralyzed. And as we understand the story, what happens is four of his friends decide, hey, bud, let's do this. We're going to get you to Jesus, right? And imagine how exciting that would be. If you're the paralyzed guy, you can't get to Jesus. Jesus is in the city. All these radical things are happening. I can't, get even, I can't even get out of bed. But four guys are willing to pick up a mat, put him on it, and carry him to Jesus, now, as we unfold the story, we understand that when they get to the house where Jesus is in, it is so full, you can't even get to the front door. Like, it's like the line at Disneyland, right? You're like, you're like, I can't, I just, there's too many people here. And there would be a lot of reasons at that moment to give up. And the reason the story is so exciting is because not only did the guys not give up, but they went to great lengths to get that guy to Jesus. So much so that they were willing to rip the roof off the what? You guys know the story. They ripped the roof off the house. I mean, imagine, you're like, hey, um, you know, Peter, let me just, I'm going to climb on your shoulders, right? And then you climb on the roof, and then we're just going to like, we're going to drag the pair. Like, can you imagine the guy in the mat, like dangling as they're coming up the side of the roof? And then there's the guy that like, let's just rip the roof off. Like all these different thoughts of near-death experiences and ripping off Peter's house, Also, that what? That I can get this guy to Jesus, now, the first thing that I would ask you right now, if you were in a situation, and I know some of you are, some of you guys are facing all kinds of challenges. Would you have four people who would do whatever it took to say, man, how do we get you to Jesus? Whether, you know, whatever that situation entails. But if I were to think, if I were in a, a situation where, man, I'm just overwhelmed. I am emotionally just, boom, hit by a truck. Who would be those four people that I would say, hey, man, I need help? Do you have four people? Friends, co-laborers, people that were like, man, we would pick you up and we would carry you to Jesus. Whether that's in prayer and intercession, whether that's getting you to some place of help and support and encouragement. And some of you guys are like, man, that's why I'm here at church. I'm looking for four, I got one, I need three more, right? Like you're, I mean, that's a, that's a part of why this fellowship is so important. You know, because maybe you're like, I have one. Now, some of you guys might be a little bit frustrated. You're like, you know, never find that extra person, you know? But one of the other questions is you're contemplating the idea of having four people that would carry you. Let me ask you this question. Are you in somebody else's form? Are you the kind of person that somebody would think if that's the guy that I wouldn't want to call if I weren't in a situation who would do everything he could to get me to Jesus? Right? Like that's the kind of person who would pick up the phone and he would pray with me. That's the kind of person who if I were in a, a difficult or challenging situation would do what it took to try to get me back to that place of being rooted in the gospel. Like, like it's as much, it's exciting to have people that are in your form. But one of the ways that you become the kind of person that someone's like, man, I got your back. You know, we talk about this like with being an armor bearer. You know, as much as I want an armor bearer, be an armor bearer. When you're the kind of person that would go to those links for somebody else, it's amazing how some of those people that God puts in your life who are willing 
to do that for you. That's the best way. If you don't have those people right now, be that person. And you'd be amazed at how God begins to put those people into your life. Now, let me take it a step further. The end of the story is really cool because not only does Jesus heal the person, but before he heals them, he does something that kind of creates shockwaves through the house. It says, when he saw their faith, the faith of the person bringing them to Jesus because they were really hoping he would get healed, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. As much as like the need for healing, the idea that you were paralyzed and man, I need to walk like that is a significant, like Jesus, if you could do that, that would be awesome. And you probably have friends and family members that, that maybe have like, like the, an area you'd love to see them get healed. You're like, Jesus, I would do whatever it took for that to happen. Totally. But as we were praying, even before you guys got here, about our unsafe family member and friends, imagine right now, if you knew I could get that person to Jesus and that person would hear Jesus look them right into the eyes and, and say to them, your sins are forgiven. You imagine how life-changing and transforming? It's like, man, I'll, I'll carry him. I don't care how long I have to. If I can just get him and they will hear that message. And is there anything stopping that truth from happening today? That Jesus is still in the business of forgiving sins and transforming lives. And I'm thinking, man, like, like what would it take? Like, dude, I will pick you up and bring you to church. We used to do this with the Harvest Crusade, right? You know, where you're like, I'm not just inviting people to come. We almost abduct people, right? We're like, we're putting you in the car. I'm picking you up like an hour early. Like, you're coming, <laughs> you know? Why? Because the concert is great. Yeah, it's a good time. But because I know that on that day, on that moment, they're going to get a chance to hear the gospel. And all the stuff that they're wrestling with and dealing with their life, there's going to be a moment for them to be able to respond and then know your sins are forgiven. Like when I think about the kind of people that I would want carrying that family member with me, guys, would you commit to like, let me take those few friends and let's all pray for that unsafe family member. I'm going to carry them and keep carrying them until we get them to Jesus. Just like I would want somebody to do that for me. Maybe you're not even in the state and you're hoping that that unsafe family member friend bumps into somebody and is willing to stop what they're doing and say, man, how can I bring this person to Jesus in the midst of their chaos and tragedy or whatever? Like, you're hoping that'll happen somewhere else. And the question is, would you be willing to do it for the people in your life? Maybe that coworker, they've got a family member that's been praying for them and you're the person that they're gonna bump into next week. You tracking with me? Like, man, he who wins souls is wise. And we don't have to do it alone. We need other people to help bring people to Jesus. Think about how far we would go. Guys, there's some great ways even in our church to find those people, to be those people. We've got connect groups every week, just a place for you to fellowship, pray, have real conversations about what's really happening in your life. And we're talking about what God did on Sunday. Just like when I get done talking about the Laker game or the Dodger game or whatever other fun thing, right? Where we're like, man, did you see that? Did you? And you like to talk about those things that are important to you with other people that you consider friends. That's the cool thing about the connect groups. You don't have to study anything. You don't have to do anything like go to a special class. You can just come and say, hey, when, when we were talking about this on Sunday, man, I, I felt God was, do and, and then you get an opportunity to build some real relationships. But guys, that's not the only place. We've got men's ministries, women's ministries, recovery ministries. You can get involved in serving. And in each one of those places, there's a team of people that you're doing life with. 
that you're sharing life with, that you're praying together with, that you're being encouraged by, that's a great place. Because some of you guys are like, man, I got like, I got one. <laughs> you know, where do I find the other three? There's some easy on-ramps right here inside the church. What about you? Are you building a team? Like, is that, is that something where you begin to look at, okay, church is one place I can find somebody? I remember Manny, Manny uh, Castro, who is our, our, our youth pastor and then also ran our Mexico missions. When we would do lunches together, like, there at his work, he would find other believers. Some of it was like, hey, we get up and we work out in the morning. Or, hey, we get together for a little Bible study. Like, where he was, he was building a team because it's like, man, I need some believers right where I'm at. And so that becomes another way. You're like, how do I build a team, you know, where um, I coach soccer? And I look, I, like I coach with another pastor. Why? Because now I got another teammate to help carry those kids before the throne of God when we pray and we plant seeds of the gospel. Like, are there different places that God has put you where you can begin to build a team to carry people to Jesus? Paul, Silas, and Timothy didn't do it alone. What did Jesus think of teams? Right, look at Jesus with the 12 disciples and they were a kind of a motley crew. It took a little while, right, for them to all kind of take shape in terms of their gifts and skill sets, but they were all very different. Tax collectors, fishermen, political zealots, like the one thing they had in common with Jesus and that was about it, right? And including G Judas in the group, like it was, but part of what Jesus did together for those three and a half years was what? They did life together, shared meals, went on trips, encountered different opportunities to serve and minister and navigate crisis and difficult moments. And in that, real life was formed. But even as Jesus was encouraging them and equipping them about ministry, he sent them out in what? Twos. Why? Because we need each other. Ministry wasn't designed to do alone. When we look at Silas, we don't have a lot of information about how Silas came to the Lord, but we know after kind of the split between Paul and Barnabas, there was a need. Paul wasn't going to go on this trip alone, and God put Silas to come alongside him. Why? The first place Paul ends up going, Philippi, we find that Paul ends up in what? Prison. Because ministry's hard, and you'll be under attack, and there's challenges. But here's the crazy thing. When we kind of get this initial insight into Paul and Silas, you got his new guy riding alongside you in ministry with them at midnight in the darkest, deepest place of the prison after they've been beaten. Are they grumbling? They're worshiping. Because sometimes God puts somebody inside your life to do ministry with to help you worship in the darkness. I need that other person when I'm just like, man, what are we doing? And then they bust out in a song or a prayer. Like you just, you need that other person to navigate the difficulties and trials and challenges. And for Paul, Silas was one of those guys. When we look at how the ministry continues in the, the work in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas get kicked out. And because they get kicked out, he looks at Timothy and says, hey, Tim, guess what? You're going back in, right? Like as much as... You know, there was this, this, this trio, these three musketeers, if you will, of ministry. Paul and Silas get removed, but then became an opportunity for Timothy to be like, hey, you're going to go back in, disciple, encourage, uplift the brothers, and you're going to bring the message back out. And Paul says, hey, in chapter 3, remember I sent you Timothy, our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and, and, and encourage you concerning the faith. And some of you guys are going to be that person where it's like, hey, now it's your turn to carry the baton. I've been ministering to this person. I've been trying to encourage this person. And now it's your turn to pick up and walk alongside that person. Because for whatever reason, that person's not there. Would you be the person that picks up the baton and says, okay, now it's my turn to pray for, love on, encourage, and support the seeds that have been watered. Some plant, some water, but it's God who gives the what? Increase. 
You don't know which one you are. One day you might be the seed planter. One day you're the waterer. One day you might get to be the person that's there to watch the increase. And that's part of being a part of this gospel team. Second thing that I want you guys to pay attention to is you're thinking about number one, hey, I want to build a team. I don't have to do this alone. God's calling us in the church together to go out to win souls for Christ. Second thing that I want you to pay attention to because people get kind of overwhelmed. Notice in verse four when Paul says, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he, he's talking about who, it's a capital he, God has what? chosen you. Now, we've only got a few minutes left in service. I don't have time to like reconcile the whole God's sovereignty, man's responsibility thing, but let me just give you a little insight into part of what I think he's talking about. Got a lot of married couples in here. Some of you guys, you know, are having flashbacks as you're thinking about, oh, you know, what was it like, you know, to, to, to ask that person to marry you, right? Like it wasn't just like, <clears throat> you marry, go. Like you just, there's, there's this risk factor involved. I remember asking him to marry me. Some of you guys know the story. We were down by the beach. This isn't us, by the way. But we were down like, you know, like the Ritz-Carlton Laguna Beach area. I had it all planned out. And then we got a little distracted by the time. And then finally, I'm like, okay, we're going to ask her. And, you know, I'm sitting there. And, like, she's doing, like, every other thing than realizing that I'm about to try to ask her to marry me. And uh, finally, I get her attention. I'm down on one knee, Right? Will you marry me? It was that. It was silence for the longest time, deafening. I was like, and then she said yes. And then she said no. But then she said yes again. Different story another day. But my point is, right, there's a, there's a moment where when you're down on one knee, when you're asking someone, you are giving them an invitation to say out of all the people in the world, you are the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. You, you are the person that has my heart. You are the person that I want to enter into the challenges and the, 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 the difficulties, the highs and lows of life. Like I'm asking, I'm inviting you to be that person that I want to partner with. That's special. To think that somebody cares about you that way. That's part of what he's talking about when he says he has chosen you. Of all the cities that Paul had gone into, remember the gospel hadn't gone out to Greece yet. Hadn't gone out into this area. And he's saying, look, we were sent, remember the call of God, Macedonia, like you today. If you go out and do evangelism, I guarantee you, like I told, I was on Cal State Fullerton a couple of weeks ago, thousands of people. But when you walk up to that one, whatever it is, maybe it's, you don't know which coworker it's going to be next week. But in that moment where you've chosen to say, this is the person for whatever reason, I'm going to pray for, plant to see, just knock on the door. I want to just see like in that moment, it's as if like, again, Jesus is down on one knee because the gospel is basically that is an invitation into a relationship with the living God who died on a cross and resurrected. Ultimately, that's the biggest I love you in the world. Like, like this idea that God has chosen them. When you think about for God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has elected the way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the whole down on one knee ring like there is something of great value that, <clears throat> that if you respond, right, like you are entering into a relationship and it's personal, right? Like it's you, you personally. And granted, like I said, we could get into, and I'd love to have the conversation with you. We can get into the whole God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, chicken or egg, you know, election conversation. But ultimately, there are some things that we know very specifically. And Paul's not explaining all of that. What he's saying 
is God has chosen you. How do I know that God has chosen you? Because the gospel has gone out to you. There is right now a moment and you responded just as Paul would say to the Romans in chapter 10, 15, how, how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See you and I, right? Kind of like the, 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 the parable of the sower. Our job is to scatter the what? The seed. We don't go out and take soil samples and check to see, okay, which soil is going to be the best soil. Our job is to go out and scatter the seed. And here's the crazy thing about the gospel. The seed reveals the soil. Like that person's choice of what they do with the gospel, that's going to reveal whatever is going on in terms of their heart. Here's what I want you to pay attention to though. John chapter six, verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent him, what? Draws him and I will raise him upon that last day. Guys, the, in the work of evangelism, here's what I want you to already know. Just like when I asked my wife to marry me, she wasn't a stranger, right? Like there was an ascent, she knew me, which is why she had to pause for a while. She's like, I don't know, right? Like it, when you and I are filling in that void, the answer to that question about purpose of life, about dealing with guilt, about that question of where am I gonna go when I die? Like God's already been drawing that person to himself. It says I put eternity in their hearts. We call it the great commission because we are coming alongside with a mission that God himself is already on. When we look at what Jesus says in the book of Revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. What if you're the knock? Right? What if God is using you, but he's actually already knocking the things that are going on in their life, their trials, tribulations, situations, the things God's already been at work. He's been tilling the soil. He's been watering the ground. Like this idea that, man, I don't even know where to start. I don't know what I'm going to say. All the pressure's on me. Hold on. Pause. If Jesus is already drawing that person, Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. God is already at work through the power of the spirit. Whether that person wants to reject it, harden their heart, again, that's like the parable of the soil. They're gonna have to deal with that with Jesus. But the fact that when I'm communicating the gospel, I'm trusting that the spirit has already been doing the work of drawing that person to the truth. What they do with it, man, that's a big responsibility. But I have to remember, like God said here, as Paul said, God had chosen them. Like I'm partnering with God in this work where he's already drawing people to himself. What made them willing to turn away from all these pagan gods, et cetera. We'll get into that next week as we get into like the gospel in contrast to idolatry. I think a lot of times one of the hindrances that we have to the gospel is we're assuming people will what? Say no. We don't like to have people tell us no. We feel like they're rejecting who? Us. When in reality, who are they actually rejecting? Jesus. And it doesn't mean that we need to get mad and reject them back. It just helps us understand that what it is that we're communicating. There's a whole lot of reasons people might say no. But what I want you to think about, and this is the last point that I want to close on. As Paul is describing them, remember he said he was thankful. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope, and Lord Jesus Christ. These sound some pretty exciting, amazing people. Right, like he's talking to these Thessalonians that respond to the gospel. He's like, man, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance, like you guys are waiting for Jesus. You're like, man, who are these people? But the thing is, you're looking at the end result. You're looking at the fruit. But if you went back to when Paul first met them, now granted, this is, they're probably not all Alice Cooper. And some of you guys are like, rock on. You know, you're like, you just caught you at a whole nother moment. 
So if you knew who that was, you know, you're like, okay, you know, this is like, this is that early Godfather shock rock, like, you know, all the goth and kind of satanic heavy metal genre, Alice Cooper. I don't have time. I'm not going to be able to show you it. But if you guys have been tracking like with Harvest Crusade, you'll know that over the last couple of years, he's gotten saved. And he's involved in sharing his testimony. He's actually involved in ministry and reaching out to youth. The crazy thing is, right, if you looked at that guy and you're like, that guy will never. Right? Like, I mean, if you made your list of like the Marilyn Mansons and the people, like we all have those people where, well, you know, um, where you're probably thinking they will never. And that's an obstacle that's probably keeping you from sharing the gospel. There are people in your life right now where you're thinking, I'm not going to tell them because they would never respond. They're too hard-hearted. They're too angry. They're too bitter. They're too whatever. But I can tell you, if you want to start looking up testimonies of people who, like, you would have never believed that they would become, like, on Thursday, if you were following along with our Thursday messages, you saw that I had Nabil Qureshi, a devout Muslim who was sharing his testimony, but he became, you know, went from uh, an antagonist to the gospel to an apologist for the gospel. Guys, there is testimony after testimony to help us say I need to take off these lenses that I'm looking through and I need to look through the lenses of what does God see? You and I see those people that would never. Notice when we look back at verse nine, gives us a little insight. It says, for you yourselves declare what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from what? Idols. These guys' lives were entrenched in every facet of their life of idolatry. And I mean idolatry at a level that you and I would be like, what? Immorality. Every aspect of their, um, of their work, of their political life was all in Trent. And yet they turned from that to Jesus. There came a point where they said, Jesus is more. How do we do that? That's part of what we're going to be getting into next week. Because that's important even for our culture. How do we identify the idols today? And how do we communicate the gospel in contrast to the idols? And I need you to pay attention because we all have a blind spot. Right? I'm teaching one of my kids to drive. I got another one coming up. I'm like, oh, Lord. And when you're teaching, you got to teach your, your drivers about a what? A blind spot. Now our cars are trying to like, they come equipped with like buzzers and bells and whistles. Like, there's a car there. Like, why do they have to do that? Because blind spots are a real thing, right? Like, it just, you, you sometimes don't know. And we could go through scientifically the idea of having photoreceptors in your, in your eyes. And as the light comes in, there are actual places where there's a missing piece. And your brain fills in the rest, like there are things where like your brain is going, this is what it is. And sometimes when you're putting the puzzle together, you don't come up with the exact picture. How many guys know what color that dress is? Come on. The dress is what color, people? Someone just said black and blue. Who thinks it's black and blue? Guys, you're all wrong. It's black and what? It's black and gold. And we could just start a fight right here in the room right now, right? The reality is it's an optical illusion. Some people, based on the way their eyes and their brain see the dress, it's actually like they're, like they'll argue with you. To them, it's black and blue. And those of you guys who, like me, know the truth that it's black and gold, you're like, no, 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 they're wrong. But the reality is that's your brain putting together information. And based on how some of your guys' brains work, you're coming to one conclusion. The others are coming into a different conclusion. And this is why I have to know the truth. Because the reality is sin distorts how we see things. And you need to pay attention to that. Number one, the devil, Satan, it says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, and we'll get introduced to him again in the book of Thessalonians, because Paul says, I've been trying to get back to you, and he says, Satan himself is keeping me from getting back to you. That's an interesting part of the book. It says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. 
says that he's the father of all lies in the book of John. Like literally, that's part of the work of sin and Satan to deceive us, to make us think one thing when something else is happening. The Bible would say Jesus would teach in Matthew chapter seven, hey, take the plank out of your own eye so you can clearly see the speck in your brother's eye. The problem is that sin distorts. It distorts what? It distorts how I see myself and it distorts how I see what? Others. And so I have to recognize even in communicating the gospel that we have blind spots. Remember, like I said, you might've looked at the Thessalonians like they'll never, they're the Alice Coopers. Except God was already knocking on the door of their heart and he's waiting for someone to say, let me tell you about the truth of the gospel. And we have right now blind spots. There might be people in this, like in this community around you that you're like, man, that person, those people, that's a good indicator. When you group them up and you're like, those people. And, and it may be a particular religion. Like for me, I, like when I first went overseas to do, to do missions work, like after 9-11 and having the frustration and anger towards Islam and all that kind of stuff, I had people I sent out to the Marines. I was ready to enlist. Like they were all, like th those, they're those people. And man, you know how many people times God put me in a position to share the gospel with Muslims later and to have my world rocked? As I, as I talked and listened to them have dreams and visions and have opportunities to share Jesus and watch tears, and I'm just like, what? You know, God was just removing those blind spots and obstacles to say there's nobody that's too far. Maybe it's a cultural thing. Maybe it's a sin thing. Those people that are caught in this sin, they would never. And you have to recognize, you have to ask, what's my blind spot that might be keeping me from sharing the gospel with that person? The church in Corinth if I were to go down the list of this corrupt, dysfunctional, broken group of people, let me just give you one highlight as we're closing out today. Verse nine, you've heard me say this before. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, nor covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners will ever inherit the kingdom of God. You would think that Paul wouldn't have to explain that. But living in Corinth, that was life for a lot of people. And they were caught up in that life and lifestyle. And guess what? They started to come to the church to hear what was going on. And here's the crazy thing about a church that was filled with those people. Paul says, and such were some of what? You. But here's the key thing. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God. There is no sin so great that the grace of God isn't greater still. Amen? Like, we've got to not forget that. That the church in Corinth was initially made up of people who were coming out of all of those pagan, broken lifestyles. Do you see now why I think this book is so relevant for what we're going? Corinth was just up the street. That's the next place Paul goes after Thessalonica. This is the community of people that Paul was preaching the gospel in. And guys, that's the community that God's calling us to reach. And he's standing at the door and he's knocking. And you and I have the message of the gospel. That what those people are truly seeking is the love of God. They're seeking forgiveness and acceptance. They're asking like, I want to be a new creation. I can't do this on my own. I know, but God has given you the Holy Spirit to transform you. He can empower you. Like all those questions, those things that people are longing for, you and I have the what? Answer. Kind of what Jesus told the woman in John chapter four, I thirst, man, I will give you living water. You'll never thirst again. Jesus is knocking. Will we be a part of helping opening that door and bringing the gospel in for those people that are ready to respond? Let's close out in prayer. Jesus, as we are thinking about the work that you did in Thessalonica through the life of Paul and Silas and Timothy, I thank you, Lord, that this room is filled with people like them whose life has been transformed. 
And Lord, as you are working in and through our life, so you are wanting to bring us in to these communities, these places where the enemy has set up his strongholds. Lord, where there's prisons that maybe don't even have bars and people don't even know that they're held captive by their fears and thoughts. And yet, Lord, today, as we're thinking about this message, I, I would pray, God, for anybody in here, maybe this is you, just eyes closed, head bowed. Maybe you're one of those people that are saying, man, I've just kind of been living in fear of talking to my, my friends, my family members, my coworkers. I need, I don't want to be like Peter who denied Jesus. I need that filling of the Holy Spirit so I can be bold to talk to people about Jesus. Would you just lift your hand with me right now? And I just want to pray for God's Spirit to come upon you to give you boldness to communicate that message. Amen. I see a number of people today. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus, right now, I pray just as you did for your disciples. Lord, as you poured out your spirit on them, so it says, I have given you power to be a witness. I would pray, God, that your spirit would fall afresh, not only on this church, but each person who's asking right now, Lord, for that double portion of your spirit to give them boldness to share the message of the gospel. I pray that you would open their eyes to scripture, that their quiet time verses would just jump off the page and would equip them to share that hope that lies within them. I pray for open doors. I pray, God, that you would help them to just have those moments to be able to see and be sensitive that that conversation, Lord, that that person's having with them right now is really an invitation to share the gospel. And so, God, we just pray that you would work in and through each hand that's shared, each heart that's asking, and we would ask this in Jesus' name. Some of you here today are thinking, well, I can't tell anybody because I, I don't know if, if I've made the decision myself, well, you don't have to leave today not having made a decision about the most important thing that you could ever make a decision about. And if that's you right here, just you and Jesus alone, he's been knocking on the door of your heart and you're saying, yeah, that's what I need. I need forgiveness. I need the answer to those questions. I need assurance, blessed assurance of what's gonna happen when I take my last breath. If that's you, would you just stop with me today right now and just say, Jesus, I need you. I'm done fighting. I'm done wrestling I want to surrender my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. I need forgiveness. I need rescue. I need hope. I need transformation. And I pray that you would just come and move into my heart, move into my mind. Use my life. In Jesus' name, amen.